All right, the question is, what song was that? How many think it's My Country, Tis of Thee? Oh, you're so wrong this morning, I'm so sorry. That is God Save the Queen. And uh, I just thought that would be a fitting this morning as we dive into a new series here called Plot Twist, When God Actually Saved the Queen. Now, if you grew up as a kid, especially a kid in America, we would sit around and we would gather our, our storybooks and we would read them to our kids or your parents would read them to you. And so many of them were what we call fairy tales, right? And fairy tales are, first of all, it has to start out with once upon a time, and then you go through this whole story and then it comes down to the end and the finishing line is, and they all happily ever after. And somewhere between once upon a time and they all lived happily ever after, there had to be a kingdom, and there had to be a king, and there had to be a queen, or maybe there had to be a prince, and maybe there had to be a princess. But it was this light, happy story, and we were all like, oh, yes, this is so much fun. And then we all wished that we could be one of those people. For Hopefully for the women, you hope that you could be the princess or the queen, that maybe the, the, the slipper would fit on your feet. And, you know, for, for the guy, we hope that we could be the uh, king or maybe the prince and, and that maybe we get the kiss that would turn us from the frog back into the prince. And, that would, and we pictured ourselves in those stories. And so we were really into our fairy tales and especially fairy tales that involve kings and queens and kingdoms and, and romance and that kind of story. And so we turn to the book of Esther this morning, which I think most of us would look at as like the fairy tale of the Bible. It's got this king, and it's got this queen, and it's got this romance, and it really isn't a fairy tale. Because there's actually quite a bit in the book of Esther where you're going to go, ooh, I didn't know that was in there. And oh, that's a little bit uncomfortable. And maybe this fairy tale story that we think is, is uh, so happily ever after is really not what it seems, and that's the first plot twist, I guess, that this story is actually a story of treachery, this is a story of debauchery, this is actually a story of some sordidness, and it's kind of like, Ugh. and yet, it was a story that was told over and over and over and over and over and over and again by the Jews. In fact, if you're an Orthodox Jew, on Monday, starting Monday evening sunset and going through Tuesday evening sunset, somewhere in that 24-hour period of this week, so we're talking tomorrow and Tuesday, you would be telling this story as a family or as a community because it was that popular in the Jewish um, tradition. So it's an important story. It's an important story for the Jews. It's important enough that it's actually been told now every single year for the last basically 2,500 years. So what is it about this story? And it's not that it's such a fun ride, although it is. It's an absolutely fascinating story because it has all kinds of plot twists and turns and surprises and reversals and things that you're just not expecting. But it goes a whole lot deeper than that. It's way more important than that. But what is it that makes this story so important? And why does a story that's not really a fairy tale that was told 25, or actually not told, that happened 2,500 years ago. Why is it an important story for us today? Well, that's what we want to dive into as we go through this next series called Plot Twist. And so I want to encourage you to turn with me to Esther chapter 1. 
Esther chapter 1, there's two books in the Bible that are named for women, Ruth and Esther. These are the only two. And so we're going to look at the, the, the second one here, the book of Esther. And what we're going to do this week is we're going to get the story started. And we're not going to try to cover the whole book. There's no way. We're actually going to try to cover two chapters, and I'm a little bit nervous about that, to be honest. But we're going to get the story started. We're going to set the stage, and we're going to introduce most of the main characters, not all of them. We're going to leave one out, and he'll arrive on the scene next week. But we're going to start by reading Esther chapter 1 and verse number 1 here. And we're going to be reading it in the uh, New International Version this week. Last week we used a different version. We're going to... Uh, New International Version, so if you're following along. And I would encourage you to follow along, too, because there is a lot that we're going to be reading here. So we read in verse number 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. So enter the first character, a guy by the name of Xerxes. You'll see him some other places known as Ahasuerus, same guy. But a guy of Xerxes, and he's the first one who shows up on the scene. Now, who is Xerxes? And history can actually answer that question for us. He was the emperor over the media Persian Empire. He was the grandson of Cyrus. He was the son of Darius. And he had come to the throne uh, of Persia. One of his palaces was, was in the city we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. But this was a huge empire that reigned uh, all the way from, from Egypt, Ethiopia, all the way over to the far edges of India in Pakistan there. And so it was the kingdom of the world at that time. He was powerful, but there were some cracks that just started to show in his reign. And by the time that he's done, you see more of that uh, up here. And when did he reign? Well, as far as what it means to us in the story, he reigned in the period where the Jews had gone back to Jerusalem. They had been taken captive into Babylon. They had been there for 70 years. And after that, they were released. And Zerubbabel led the first group of people back to Jerusalem. Well, not all of the Jews went at that time. And later on, Ezra and Nehemiah led another group of people back to Jerusalem. Well, Xerxes lived in that time between Zerubbabel and between Ezra and Nehemiah. That's when his kingdom was really at its finest. And so, we read on. Xerxes, who ruled, for 100, ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to northern Africa... At that time, Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel, or the capital city, one of the capital cities of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. And so what we're about to read here, he's living on the coattails of, of his father here and of his grandfather. So it's only in the third reign. He hasn't really accomplished much of anything, other than the fact he's got lots of wealth that's been passed on to him. In fact, so much wealth that he's decided to have a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of uh, Persian media, the princes, the nobles of the, of the provinces were present. And for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And so what he's done is he's called for a big banquet, a big feast. And all of his military leaders that are spread across the entire kingdom have been invited here for a planting, planning and strategy session, which you think you could probably do in less than 180 days, but 
When you're really into showing off how wealthy you are and how great you are, you need 180 days so that everybody gets the full effect of your importance and of your greatness. And that's actually what's been going on. We've done a little bit of military planning. They actually planned for a battle against Greece that they end up losing later on here. But there's been this big 180-day feast where there's just a lot of eating and a lot of drinking and a lot of who knows what that's going on there. But finally that feast comes to an end, verse number 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. And so the party for all the leaders from across the kingdom is over, and so the king just moves on into the next party. He likes to party. And this party is for anybody who lives in the capital city here of Susa. Come on in and enjoy yourselves. We're going to have a party here. So Xerxes has been introduced to us, and we get a little bit of an idea of his character, of his personality. He's a big deal, or he thinks he's a big deal, or he really wants to be a big deal. And he's all about being ostentatious and being over the top and being excessive. He likes to eat, he likes to drink, and he just loves to be the hero. And so he invites all these people into a second feast here. And it tells us a little bit in verse number 6 of, of what the palace was like in the gardens there. They hanging, uh, had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material. And it goes on here to tell us about the, the couches and it tells about all of the different costly stones. And then it gets down to verse number 7. It says, wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And isn't this great if you're just a peasant on the street? You get invited into the palace and you know, you're sitting there drinking wine out of the, the gold from the king's treasury there. And by the king's command, verse number 8, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And so everybody was just drinking away. And you can imagine here it's probably not creating a great situation. But we have this picture here of Xerxes who basically is trying to say to all of his military leaders, look at me, I'm great and I'm big, and saying to all his subjects, hey, you know what? You can just look to me. I'm like God in your life, you know? Drink up. It's on me. And that's the picture we get of this guy. Well, we get the second character that comes into the, the, onto the scene. Actually, plot twist here, she never does make it onto the scene, and we'll find out why. But in verse number Nine, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, so she's, Xerxes is having a party over here for the men. Vashti's over here having a party for the women. And on the seventh day, when the King Xerxes was in high spirits, in other words, when he was drunk out of his mind, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to go, and I'm in verse number 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing a royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. And there's nothing here in the, in the text to su suggest something lewd, although some people think that might be the case. It's more than likely he was just like feeling very impressed by how beautiful his wife was, and since he's all about showing off, this is just one more way that he could show off. And so he sends the, the message, hey Vashti, come on in here, stand here, and everybody can look at you and be impressed by your beauty. and can be, ooh. Uh, and everybody can say, oh, you lucky dog, man, you're married to her. And that's what's going on in this situation. And so the, the um, 
invitation, if you want to call it invitation, comes from the king to Vashti. Verse number 12, the attendants delivered the king's command. And Vashti refused to come. It's like, uh, guys, uh, tell the king, nope, that's not happening. I'm staying here. He can have his little party over there. I am not going to be participating in that. And so the king, who has just spent 187 days trying to convince everybody of how great and how powerful and how indomitable he is, just got shot down by his wife who said, uh, no, don't think so. And he told, she told him no, and this was a guy who had never been told no before and didn't like to be told no, and then he just got told no by his wife and by a woman. And the king, it says at the end of verse number 12, became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of law and judgment, he spoke with the wise men and understood the times were closest to the king, and it lists them there. These seven nobles of Persian media who had special access to the king, they were higher in the kingdom. And so what's going on here, Xerxes just got shot down. He's just been told no. He's mad, and he's not quite sure what to do about it. So it's like, I guess I better ask. And so he calls in his closest advisors, and, and these were yes men, and we see this as we go through the book here. And he says, what do I do? According to the law, what do I do with Queen Vashti? Verse number 15, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. And I love how he speaks of himself in the third person here. You ever notice that people, like, when they start to talk about themselves, like, and then, and they lose their name, and I'm like, it's just kind of weird to me. Sometimes you like, hear athletes, and then so-and-so scored a basket. I'm like, well, is that you or not? But anyhow, he starts talking in the third person here, and I think just kind of out of respect to himself. And then Mamukin. One of these yesmen replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti, she has done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against us, all the nobles. In, in fact, she's done wrong against everybody here, all the peoples of the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. And you know what that means? That means when you tell me what to do, I don't have to listen to you. Which might, you know, be kind of an extreme reaction to this. But you can just see all of these guys gathered around here, and everybody's had way too much to drink. And, and you know, and, and they're like, you know what, king? This, this could be like the end of the kingdom. Like, I mean, all the manly men are going to be, they're going to be, and all the women, they're going to take over here. And you know what? I'm going to be sleeping on the couch here. And, you know, the next thing you know, she's going to be telling me to pick up my own socks. And that I can go ahead and load the dishwasher myself if I'd like to. And that's not going to happen. That's, you know what? And so these guys felt threatened. And so, verse number 18, this very day, the Persian and Median women of the mobility who have heard about the queen's conduct, they will respond to all of the king's nobles in this way. And there will be no end of disrespect and discord. And you can hear them all, you're so right, Mamukin. You, you, yeah, you're right. You tell the king. Therefore, if it pleases the king, that's the statement of a yes man, if this is what you're wanting to hear, by the way, Xerxes, let you, you can issue a royal decree, let it be written in the laws of the Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that first of all, Vashti is never again to enter the presence of Xerxes. She doesn't want to come when she's called, she doesn't get to come at all. Okay? I'm not sure she was going to be all that upset about that. But then it gets a little bit more uh, serious. It says, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. In other words, kick her off the throne 
And let's get a little dig in here. Let's find somebody else who's better than she is. So she is banished from the queendom, if that's a title or a position, I'm not sure. And then the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm. And all the, the women then, they'll respect their husbands from the, the least to the greatest. And so here's what we need to do. We just need to get rid of Vashti because if we get rid of Vashti, that will send a very clear message of who's in charge. So the kings and nobles were pleased with this advice, and they did as Mamukin proposed. And they sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to every province in its own script, and, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own household. There you go. That's going to fix it. Just, we'll make a law. Guys, you're in charge. Okay? And uh, so... The problem with that is, you know, if you have to tell somebody you're in charge, you're probably not. Just something to think about there. But the emperor of the greatest kingdom has been exposed as weak, and he's been exposed by a woman. And that's chapter 1. And so we've had a great crisis in the kingdom, and we've halfway dealt with it because we've gotten rid of Vashti, and we've made a law now. But what happens next? Well, we keep reading here in chapter 2. Later... When King Xerxes' fur, furry, sorry, fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had declared about her. And we don't know if that's like in regret or in anger how he remembers her. But the king's personal attendants proposed, let's make a search for the most beautiful young virgins or the unmarried women for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his realm. And keep in mind how big this province is. We're talking from... Ethiopia, Egypt, we're talking all the way over to, to India, so this is huge. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given them. Then the young woman who pleases the king uh, will become queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Okay, but this is not... A fairy tale situation. This is not a beauty contest inviting all the beautiful women who'd like to sign up to come on in and maybe one of you, if you're the lucky one, will get to be the queen. Not at all. First of all, this is going throughout the kingdom, so there's nothing here to suggest that this was a volunteer opportunity. It's very likely that this was coercive. Hey, by the way, oh, you're a really attractive woman, come with me. And so they were taken then to the capital city, and they were put into the harem, and where they were actually, you know, given these treatments or their food or, or cosmetics or whatever to be even more uh, beautiful so that they can each have their opportunity with the king to impress him and to be named the queen. But it wasn't a date night, folks. This was every bit as seedy as you might imagine. This was going in with the king, spending the night with him, and if he liked how, how you did, who you were, what you looked like, then he was going to choose you as the next queen. Now, maybe this was exciting for some. I don't know. I doubt it. And the losers of this did not get sent home in a limo. The losers of this got moved to another part of the kingdom where they lived the rest of their lives, unable to marry because of what has happened. And we're talking here literally about sexual slavery. 
Not much of a story, uh, fairy tale, is it? So what do we know about Xerxes, or we might call him Jerxes? He's all about excessive extravagance. He loves power and importance. He has no qualms about abusing and exploiting others, including women. In fact, he really doesn't have any value for them other than what they might contribute to him. How he looks or his own pleasure, whatever. He tends towards drunkenness and revelry. He's a narcissist, narcissist and, and basically we could probably describe him best as just a very rich creep. That's the king. Now, there was in the city of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jared, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Among those taken captain with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. There's just a lot of history there. But it introduces our next major player. And this is a guy by the name of Mordecai. However, it just kind of skips past him. We're going to come back to him. And he's actually mentioned more in this book than any other character, even though the book doesn't bear his name. But we keep reading in verse number 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, was physically beautiful. And Mordecai had taken her as, her, as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. And there we bring, come to the, to the next main character, and that's Esther, who's the, the namesake uh, of this book. And so, we have Mordecai and Esther, who is his cousin, maybe niece, somehow a relative. But when the king's order, verse number 8, an edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of this uh, Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to him. And she pleased him, won over his favor, and immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. And he assigned her uh, attendants and, and just did everything he could to, to make her be the winner is what it actually is coming down to. So the question is, is this exciting for Esther? I don't know. Maybe. Or was it disconcerting or, or uncomfortable? All I know is that Esther's in a really tough spot here. And she's got to make a decision, and I don't know how much decision she was able to make. Like when the king's people would come and say, hey, we want you to come for the king here. If you can say, no, thanks, I'm not interested. Or if that puts you at, like, at risk of your life. We're never really told that. But we sense that there's some coercion there. But I have questions for Esther, too. For instance, okay, why were she and her uncle still in Persia? Because they, they probably should have gone back to Jerusalem. They had that opportunity, so why didn't they? We don't really know. And it's possible they could have gone to Jerusalem and found her and brought her back. But still, she's sitting in a bad place because she probably should have taken different action. And let's put that one more on Mordecai than we do on Esther, but that's still a question to ask. Now, I have a second question for you, too. So he gets, she gets brought into the palace, and she's now hanging out with all these women and, and these, these uh, guys that are, that are prepping them. For the king, and she's given special food. Does that sound familiar? You remember, like, if you go back a, a little bit in time there, when Daniel was taken to Babylon and he was offered special food, what did he say? Uh, no thanks, I don't eat that stuff. It's been offered to idols. So, why is Esther eating the same stuff that probably Daniel, you know, a few decades before said, no, 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 no? 
Just some questions for her. So Esther, verse number 10, had not revealed her nationality. That's another question. Why is she not saying that she's a Jew? You could say, well, because of the rest of the story, okay, but the rest of the story doesn't, hasn't happened yet. And she doesn't know what the rest of the story is going to be. And at that point, the Jews were really not, as near as we can tell, under any great threat. So why is she not speaking up for the fact that she is a Jew? We don't really know. But Mordecai comes back to him in verse number 11. He seems to be nervous or anxious or curious, something. Every day he walks back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out who Esther was and what was happening to her. And in the morning, or excuse me, and then we see the process here of, of these different people going in with the king, spending the night with the king, and, and see what happens there. But verse number 15, when it came time for Esther, the young woman, to go to the king, she asked for nothing, uh, to, and she went in there. And it says, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And this is another good question for Esther. She's basically going in there, and she's going to the, the uh, I mean, she's spending the night with the King, so why is she in bed with somebody who's not her husband or that she's not married to? This would be very wrong in the Jewish culture. Well, it says the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman, and she won his favor and approval more than the other virgins. So he chose her, put the royal crown on her, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Sorry. And the next question is, okay, so now she's going to be the queen. They're getting married. Why is she a Jew marrying a non-Jew, which they're forbidden to do? And so this story, Esther, the great heroine, we're looking at like, oh, gosh. She's, she's not quite as, you know, the, the, uh, the, the innocent princess that, that we've always assumed that she is. And so the king gives a banquet, and in... Because why not, right? Anytime we make any decision, whatever, in the kingdom, he has a banquet. So there's another banquet, and she has named the, 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 the queen. Well, there's one more section in here, and I'm not going to take time to read it because we're running short on time here. But in verses number 19 to 23, I would encourage you to read this on your own. But there's just a little piece of information that we provide here that sets up something later in the story. But it's just inserted here by the author. Okay, so we have these stories. We have some action, but so far in this book, we're two chapters in, and we don't really have the main conflict of the story yet. We haven't even met the protagonist, which, believe it or not, there's somebody in this story worse than Xerxes. He's coming in chapter 3, and he's really a, a piece of work. But let's just pause here for a more this morning as we set the stage here and to think about four things that we can learn so far from this story that might be helpful to us. And these are all plot twists. So here's the first one. In the story so far, if you've noticed this, we've never heard the name of another character who plays a major role in this book. And his name is God. In fact, you can read the rest of the book of Esther and you will never find God's name mentioned. Ever. Once. Not one time. Through this entire book, which is about the Jews, and, and pretty crazy, and he doesn't show up. In fact, this becomes such a problem to people that there was all the time, you know, conflict. Like, should this book even be included in the Bible? Here's another interesting fact. Esther is never referred to in the New Testament or quoted from in the New Testament. 
fact, there's maybe one reference in John chapter 5 where we see Jesus participating in something that would have gone back to the story. But God isn't seen, and yet as we read this story, and it's going to become more true as we go, God is all throughout this story. And it becomes more apparent that he is the lead character, and that he is the one who's in charge, not King Xerxes. The guy who thinks that he is the ruler of the world is not. The ruler of the world doesn't even have to speak up, doesn't have to make any noise, doesn't have to proclaim his name, and yet he's still in charge. And boy, are we going to see how in charge he is in that story. And so let me just remind all of us that God is still God in our stories. And sometimes we're not aware of him, sometimes we're not seeing him. He's invisible and he's working sometimes behind the scenes, but God is God in that story. Second plot twist here. This story then really isn't about Esther. She's not the main character. Oh, it is about Esther, obviously. But it's really about God and what he is doing in history. But here's what's so important. It is about Esther in the fact that she was the human agency that God uses in this story. And it's a reminder to us that we live in bigger stories than just our own. We live in a bigger story that's God's story, and God's going somewhere with it, and he just uses us in his story. Now, we all have our own stories, and our own stories fit in with God's stories, or God's story, but his purposes are going to be fulfilled not because of us, but using us. That's kind of a cool thought, isn't it? That God's up to something in this world, but when God's up to something, he uses people like Esther, and people like you, and people like me. And so God may be up to something in our story right now, and he may have selected you, and you don't even realize it, and yet he's using you. And maybe in some spectacular way that's going to be recorded in history like Esther, or maybe in some much smaller way that will never be recorded in history, but will still have incredible impact. Because whatever it is that God's up to right now, he's using people like you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me. In the story. Because what do we find out about Esther? There's some questions there, right? And we would say that as the third plot twist. Esther was not chosen for her virtue. You can say, well, of course, she was chosen for her beauty. But I'm not talking about chosen by Xerxes. I'm talking about being chosen by God. And God did not choose her because he's like, oh, there's Esther. What a sterling example of Faith. That's not the picture we get of Esther at the beginning of this story. Now, some of it she may have just been trapped into and didn't have much of a choice. And yet we could say about Vashti, she didn't have a choice either, except she did. And yet God chooses Esther. Why? Because God uses imperfect people in his perfect plans. And actually, God chooses imperfect people, and in the process of working out his plans, he changes those people in the story. And let me just suggest this morning that the person we see of Esther by the end of the story is a lot different than the person we see of Esther at the beginning of the story. And I don't mean to, you know, to give Esther a hard time because I don't, we don't know all the details. But God's not looking for perfection God's just looking for people that he can work with and people that he can work with in 
and use us. And so Esther becomes the heroine, but she doesn't start that way. And she's not starting the beginning for virtue. And sometimes we're like, I'm just not good enough for God. That's, like, That's fine. Are you available? Okay, then I can do something with you. And I think a lot of us are defeated. Like, I'll never do anything great. I'll never make a big difference in the world because, I mean, look at, look at all these problems I have. Look at all these weaknesses. Look at all these insecurities. And we, we, our list of things, and God's like, this is not about you, Esther. This is not about you. This is not about you. This is not about This is about me and what I can do in you and what I can do through you. And so if you come in this morning, you're like, okay, I could never do anything great for God. I can never... Just get rid of that. Because the story of Esther is the fact that God takes people who aren't perfect. He takes flawed people and he uses them and he transforms them and he transforms the story. And then the last plot twist here is this story really isn't about Persia. It's about kingdoms past and present. It's about the kingdom of God and it's about the kingdom of man. And we can actually compare Persia to the kingdom that we live in today. And as we've talked about Persia, does it sound anything like the world that we live in today? Major power struggles going on. Everybody trying to impress everybody else with how important they are. How much power they have. How they are large and in charge. Does that sound familiar? Unhealthy extravagance. Do you see that anywhere? In today's world? Deep-seated misogyny in the mistreatment, in the object, objectification of women. See that anywhere? See that everywhere? That's the world that we live in, too. Sex trafficking, a huge issue in that world, huge issue in this world that we live in as well. Drunkenness, moral debauchery. Moral decay. See that anywhere? Narcissism. People living to be their own God. Pragmatism. Do whatever we got to do so that we can get whatever we want here. But here's the story. God was bigger than that kingdom. His kingdom's always bigger than that kingdom. And so we look at our world today and, and then our first thing is like, oh, I'll just give up. What's the point here? I'm just overwhelmed by this. It's just horrible. Okay, well, we don't give up because God is still God over the kingdoms of this world. The other temptation is to assimilate. Well, okay, if you can't beat them, just join them. You know, let's go with the flow. Well, that's not the right answer either. The answer is to not give in or to give up, but to actually give it to God. And to let God be God in the story. So what do we learn this morning as we conclude? We learn this, that you are a part of God's bigger story. He's up to something in this world and he's using you in the process, but he's also up to something in you. And he's not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your willingness to be used in his story. And maybe it will be something with great notoriety, and maybe it will be something of quiet significance, but we just simply need to lean into God and say, okay, God, I'm in. Whatever it is that you want, I'm in.
If you need me to be the queen, I'll be the queen. If, if you need me to be the person who just brings the food to the queen, I'll, I'll bring the food. If you need me to be the person who's just out living in the, the, the society here that has nothing to do with what's going on in the palace, I'm, I'm good with that too. Whatever the role is, God, I'm okay with that. Just use me. And in the process of using me, make me who you want me to be. And so we get started with Esther's story. The story of when God saved the queen. Let's pray. So God, thank you for this story. And, and as we just get started here this morning, I pray that it would intrigue us. But this is a story of you, God, and the great things that you do in our lives. And so as we close this morning, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I just invite you to do business with God for a moment. What from this story so far speaks to you, where do you need to respond? Maybe it's just identifying with God. And say, I don't want to be part of this culture and society. That's not what I'm interested in. I want to have faith. And that faith comes actually through Jesus Christ. And maybe that's the decision and the choice you make this morning. But maybe your decision is like, okay, God, I'm willing to be used in your story. In fact, I want to be used in your story. It doesn't have to be in greatness. It's just that I want to experience you in my life and to know that my life matters to you. And maybe to the people around me. And maybe it's just that commitment that you need to make this morning. I don't know. So God, we lift ourselves to you. And we pray that you would make us aware of how you are writing the story. Then this week, give us a desire to live into that story and to be a part of what you're doing. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me this morning. Would you stand with me here? There is a storyline prompt that's at the bottom of your outline there and your bulletin. I always want to encourage you to, to follow along in, in the journal there. And I want to encourage you also next week to be here at 945 for, um, to meet John, Jao goes by two names, and he can explain that uh, when he gets here. But we'll let you be a part of that, and he'll be here for the service. And we'll be continuing on in the rest, not the rest, the next chapters in the story of Esther. Have a great day. You're dismissed.